when I was a younger fellow, I had the great experience that some of you may have had, although probably not exactly the same way, of being screamed at by a grown man this close to my face. It was football season as we're entering into now. This probably happened more than once. And this is the refrain that I would hear and can still hear today. Young bullet, what are you doing? Happily, this was a taunt three inches from my nose, holding onto my face mask so I can't turn away. And I think it was an affirmation. I think it was the kind of thing he would say because I had just done something brilliantly and he wanted everyone else to notice it. Am I, am I reading that right? Like, what are you doing? Look at you. What a wonderful thing. No, that is not what he was doing. He was exasperated. And because he operated within this weird con fine of American sport where it is somehow okay for large men to scream at boys. He would get in my face and say, young blood, what are you doing in his exasperation? But he loved us and I knew this. I think when you look at your life sometimes, if you were in the position, you had the authority, you were a lot bigger than someone else, you do it, that's why you scream at your kids sometimes. But if you could look at God, there are times, aren't there, where you wish you could grab him if you had a face, God doesn't wear a face mask, but if you did, or you could throw your arms around, his, your hands around his neck. This is not polite to talk about, but you have times, I'm sure, where you want to say in God's face, what are you doing? And your voice might not be like that in your dialect, but the exasperation behind it might be there. Because face it, there are so many things that are simply beyond your control. Right now, every single person here is in the middle of a great war. The people around you, the closest people to you might know it. People behind you probably have no idea about it. And it's the kind of thing where you have moments where you feel utterly abandoned, you feel utterly aggravated, you've sought the Lord, you've prayed, you've looked for Him to do something, and nothing's happening. And maybe even worse, the exact opposite of what you wanted to happen has happened. Or things you didn't even think of that could happen have started to happen. And you sometimes, if you're honest, if you haven't just checked out on God entirely, you want to shake your fist, you want to get up in His face and say, What are you doing? Now, in a way that you might not expect, as we look at the book of Acts, I would like to submit to you that the book of Acts, written by Luke, the doctor, the traveling companion of Paul, as a sort of act two to the gospel of Luke, as we call it in your gospels, is given to us so that we can know in those moments when we say, what are you doing? We can know maybe what God is eventually going to do. We can get a sense that can help us to avoid utter despair when it looks like God is doing nothing. 
that God is always up to something, and he has been from the beginning, and he's not going to stop. And so Luke says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. He's talking about the book of Luke, that we call Luke. That's his former book. He meant for these to be read together. He said, in that former book, I talked about how Jesus began this kind of work. And now I'm going to tell you about a work that he has continued. And as we look at it, we're going to find that the continuation of that work, first through his apostles, through the building and the starting of the church, continues to this day. And it's all driven by this very deep, abiding sense that Luke got, that the apostles stumbled into, that hopefully sometimes we can fall headlong into, that God has ambitions for your life and for the world. He has a relentless sort of intention that things not stay broken down, that loss not be a permanent feature of people's lives, that despair not grip you around the neck and make you curved in and slumped at the shoulder. That God has a relentless sort of ambition and mission in this world, for this planet, that is unstopping. And Luke is introducing us to it, as the rest of the scriptures do. After Jesus' suffering, he showed himself to these men, his apostles, And he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. If you want to know in those moments when you say, God, what are you doing? What's going on here? Are you paying attention? Are you taking a nap? Have you forgotten to be merciful? Have your promises dropped to the ground? In any of those moments, one of the things that is imperative for people who belong to Jesus is to realize that you are part of a history that you won't read about in an American history book, and you won't read about in world civilization class, and you won't hear about it on Fox News or MSNBC or in the Atlantic or the New Yorker or the New York Times or the Chattanooga Times Free Press. There is a quarter of history that is the foundation for all of history that Luke is letting us in on that has to be the cornerstone of how you think about your life or you will live a very small life and a life filled with despair that can't be spoken into. Jesus began to do something. The intention as Luke tells it, is to tell a story about some real things that actually happened. He's going to tell us about how Jesus met with these apostles after he raised from the dead. He gave careful proofs of his having raised from the dead. One such careful proof, it's a pretty cool proof, is he ate fish. How do you prove that a dead man is alive? What do you eat fish? Have you ever seen a dead man eat a fish? Have you ever seen a ghost eat a fish? Only alive people can eat fish. And Jesus appears and eats with his disciples. He has, as Luke tells us, 
appeared in many different ways and gave many convincing proofs because he wanted these apostles to know that something astonishing had happened in history that had altered all history as they knew it. And it confirmed for them this idea that the sovereign Lord that they had always worshipped had become embodied. And he had come down into this world to rescue it because he delighted in it. You know, King David says that in one place in the Psalms. As he's thinking about being in a situation where he's just drowning. The waters are coming over him. Much like we sang that cool U2 song in worship. Psalm 40. He's drowning. Torrents go around him. The water's coming over. His lungs are filling up. And a strong and powerful hand reached down and plucked him out. And he says this. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That's King David. The scriptures would have us see that that's what Jesus was doing when he came down into the world. He was the strong arm of God made weak so that he could rescue this creation and his people that he delights in. And so the apostles, by being convinced with these proofs that Jesus was alive... By having the whole category about who God is and what he's like and what he's up to change because Jesus taught them this is what God is going to do. This was how God wants to fix the earth. This is how God wants to set up his reign. This is how God wants to reconcile people to himself and alter what has been tarnished and marred. The sovereign Lord who gives orders to the morning, the sovereign Lord who directs history in a course, has appeared in this person of Jesus, has been raised from the dead, and he taught these apostles who we're going to hear about in the book of Acts. And Luke, and this is the beginning of Luke, says this to Theophilus. I've carefully investigated all of this stuff from the very beginning. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've scoped it out, and I've written these things down so that you may know the certainty of what you have been taught. Luke wants you in the middle of your questioning. He wants you in the middle of facing a life where we're all, as Professor Jones told a group of us one day, we're all basically dead. What? Do you realize this? Scott's a Hebrew Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures professor. And he was preaching, teaching through Ecclesiastes. And he said, you know, if you're taking a history test... And someone asked you when a certain thing happened, and you said, it happened in 1400, and it really happened in 1470, you wouldn't think, gosh, I don't know anything. Somebody would be impressed at a party if you were playing Trivial Pursuit, and you guessed 1400, and it was really 1470. 70 years off. Seems pretty close. That's a lifespan. It's a rounding error in history. And so Scott said, when you look at Ecclesiastes, you come up to this idea that we're all basically dead. So happy Sunday. He didn't say it to make us start drinking. Or to give ourselves to our hobbies more wholeheartedly. It's the kind of thing that the Bible talks about. It's this reality, this utter reality that humans cannot bear very much of. That this life... It's very short. It's very fleeting. What in your culture wants to talk to us about that? 
But these apostles are taught as people who know that life is short. People around us are dying, will die, everybody, including us. And so it wants to say, here is something that you can know. Here is a way you can interpret your own history and the history of the world so that you don't give up despair because you're all basically dead. So that you can't, you don't live in just a state of panic, thinking that this is it. That if someone near you dies, or if you die, that that's it. Because death can be reversed. And if death can be reversed, then there's nothing that can't be. And so Luke wants to point attention to give you certainty that you can count on this Jesus, who is the sovereign Lord in flesh, who has acted on our behalf, who has made sure that in his absence that there were these apostles who were equipped to tell us and the world what he wanted us to know so that we could be a people of hope. And behind all of it is the God who loved the world and sent his son. Is the God who props himself up against the ruin of the world and says, I will not stand and watch it idly go to the ditch. I will not let it linger in perpetual darkness. I'm the God who turns darkness into light. I'm the one who keeps lamps burning. And he has localized himself in this person of Jesus who's now talking to the apostles. And on one occasion when he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? See, if you're going to have an answer to your own anguish and to your own sense of, what am I supposed to do? What is my purpose here? Why am I here? How do I understand the bad things that are happening? Are they final? You've got to have some sense that God is controlling this whole thing. That he has a good aim, and it's driven by this mission of rescue because he delights in us. But the other part you've got to see is, like these apostles, they realized when Jesus was conquering death, that something weird was happening, and they realized this is the one who's going to restore things. So they ask him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? At a party the other day, a few weeks ago, a swim party, lots of kids and grown-ups around, there was a small child, not so small that they couldn't talk, but so small that they were not able to change their diaper by themselves, a child who was a member of a large family. Jim Gaffigan has said that large families are like waterbed stores. They used to be everywhere, now they're just weird. That's what he said. Well, God loves large families, and we love large families, and we got a lot of them around here. But so this little child was walking around wearing a little more than their birthday suit, had on a diaper. This diaper was soiled in some fashion. I don't know the details. Don't care. <laughs> this child was walking around looking up at adults saying, 
Will you change my diaper? Will you change my diaper? Will you change my diaper? This child knew, as part of a large family, it may not be mom or dad who winds up doing it, but eventually, if there are grown-ups around it, I ask enough, somebody will take care of it. Now, how do I apply a metaphor about changing diapers to you people? The reality is that you may not need your diaper change. You need to be altered in some way. Your life needs to be altered in some way. There are things about it that are just unbearable. There are things about yourself sometimes that you look at and you inspect in your quiet moments and after you've acted a certain way or certain ways that you feel, certain kinds of jealousies that overcome you, certain kinds of fears that drown you, certain kinds of harshnesses you share with those around you that you love, and you find yourself intolerable. And you need to be altered. I need to be changed. And what the disciples rightly recognized is that in Jesus, because of this mission of God to alter the whole world, in Jesus was the person you could hope for restoration. Now, they misread it. They didn't understand fully. But they say, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? They knew that the possibility of alteration resided in them who had altered death itself. They knew that sorrows could be altered. They knew that their exile could be altered. The fact that they were now living as servants under the thumb of Rome without a Jewish king, they knew that those things could be altered. That this age of sorrow could be changed. Because they'd seen a man raised from the dead. Which means anything could be changed. And so they say, are you going to restore Israel at this time? You know, he doesn't say, no, no, you silly. I'm not going to restore the kingdom. He says, wait. It's not for me or you to know. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. He doesn't say it's not going to happen. He just says it's not going to happen today. He says God has history prescribed. He's on a timetable. And it's not your timetable. So be relieved. You who are nervous about when you're going to find a spouse or how long everybody around you is going to live or when you're going to make enough money or when your life's going to be the way you want it to, be relieved that you don't control very much at all. God has set times. God has set by his own authority this time when things will be restored. And Jesus says, what you're going to do is you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to wait for the gift that my Father has promised you. He tells them to wait. It's helpful when you're in the middle of needing alteration and you need God to answer. You need to know, what are you up to? It's very helpful to know that waiting on the Lord, that waiting for Him to change you, waiting for Him to change the situations around you, waiting for Him to make sad things come untrue is not some fool's end. It will happen. It might not happen in this life, 
But this life, we're all basically dead. It's short. And Jesus is preparing us to live forever. So he says, wait. Wait for the gift of my Father's promise, which you've heard me speak about. Waiting is nearly the hardest thing any of us ever do. We get worried when we wait. We get impatient when we wait. We get angry when we wait. Does anybody like driving in a car? See, nobody even knows what it's like anymore. The older parents in here, pre-lots of technology, know what it's like to drive in a car with children who are malcontented for a long time. When we get there yet, so children don't ask if we'll get there yet anymore because they're plugged up. Just like the rest of the world. See, waiting is very hard. It's very easy when you're waiting to just give up hope. To just shut something off because it's hard to wait. You might have heard me say before, a friend of mine years ago was trying to get married in college. He had to go talk to the to his fiance, his girlfriend's dad. Dicey situation. I said, how are things going with her dad? And he said, oh, he, I think he's doing all right. He figures if he just plays enough golf and drinks enough beer, it'll work itself out. <laughs> if he just plays enough golf and drinks enough beer, it'll work itself out. You see, that's how we handle waiting sometimes. We kill it. It's hard to wait. It's hard to keep hoping. So you try not to get yourself distracted. And sometimes, just sometimes, God cuts through those distractions. He puts you in places where you can't do anything but wait. You can't be numbed to the reality that you're someone who needs your diaper changed. You're someone who needs your heart changed. You're someone who needs the world changed. And you can't hide from it. And in those moments, he gets you on the shoulder, he taps you and says, look up. I'm going to restore all things. I'm going to rescue you because I delight in you. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Your waiting times are not wasted times. The apostles, when they were told to wait for this gift that the Father had promised, they set to praying. Because that's what you do when you wait with expectation, is you start, and this is what's fun about it, you start to get to look for God's inbreaking all the time. Because God wants to rescue this planet. So there are reconciliation situations. There are relationships that are busted. There are sorrows that need to be mended. There are griefs that need to be tended to. There are businesses that need to be resalvaged. There are neighborhoods that need to be restored. And God gives his spirit to his apostles so they can bear witness to the reality that there's nothing that can't be reversed. And he says to you who wait... Earnestly expect from me. Keep asking me. Keep praying to me. That I'll give you my spirit more and more. That I'll let you accompany me in my mission to this world that I'm going to rescue because I delight in it. That you would be a people who offer solace. 
to those who are broken down on the wheels of living. That you would be a people who offer reconciliation to people who know they need their diapers changed and you know where to get changed and where to get clean. Your waiting isn't wasted. And when you want to say, God, what are you doing? You need to remember that though it sometimes takes a long time, weeping only remains for a time and rejoicing comes in the morning. The restoration the recalibration, the rehabilitation, the renovation of all that is tarnished and wrong is coming. And Jesus proved it by getting up from the dead. He says, wait for me. And know that your waiting isn't wasted.